1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shape of Work podcast and for this episode we have a very special guest with us who is Dr. Delna DeMudiwala, Global HR Head at DNEC, a seven-time Oscar-winning studio known for their commendable work in the VFX industry. Hi Delna, thank you for joining us today.
0: Hi, my pleasure.
1: Likewise. So to begin with, could you please take us to your career journey so far?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, Firstly, I'd like to say a big thank you uh, for inviting me to speak on this podcast. A little bit about me. I am a doctor by qualification, but a pure management professional uh, by experience. A lot of that happened uh, a little bit by default, a little bit by design. I I am currently working as global head of HR at a visual effects company called DNEG. And uh, I've worked here for the last 15 years now and prior to that I was working in healthcare also in the learning and development field and uh, yeah I think that's that's pretty much in a nutshell happy to answer more questions
1: so a doctor turned HR how did that happen I mean how did you get that away? yes okay this is what would be my ground
0: yes so, uh, just to take uh, take everyone back a little bit in the story, I, I grew up in a time in India when uh, typically the only two professions that that your parents thought were were good enough or respectable enough were you could either become a doctor or you could become an engineer. And uh, I wasn't; math was not my favorite topic, so I naturally gravitated to biology and uh, and and obviously you know the the rest is history that i studied like a nerd uh, through my 10th and through my 12th and uh, got admission in mbbs in mumbai it was i thoroughly enjoyed it when i was studying the subject but uh, i generally had an affinity towards uh, subjects that were usually more inclined towards people and minds of people etc I spent a bit of time in the U.S. post my graduation, and that, in fact, is, is where I got the first taste of what it would be like to be a healthcare professional, but in the management field. So, till that time, HR was nowhere on my radio, radar, to be honest, and uh, but I had the opportunity to study healthcare management in the U.S., and that opened up this whole other area of working in management, but I was still very keen to hold on to the healthcare field. I came back to India several years back, and uh, that's when I, I tried to find a foothold in learning and development, specifically in healthcare. But uh, at the time, learning and development was very, very closely linked to HR. So I had I, I typically say I, I had a little bit of a backdoor entry into HR, got into it thinking I would only stick to learning and development and only stick to healthcare. But I think it was not even three or four years before I then, of course, subsequently did my MBA in HR and then got wooed by uh, my now CEO into moving uh, and making, to me, more than a doctor to HR professional, the jump was healthcare to media and entertainment. And they're two hugely different industries. But uh, I completed my MBA, and that is when I, I felt I was possibly ready to take a take a bit of a leap into a different industry. And that's what landed me into this role. I was cautiously optimistic. In my early years, way back in 2008, 2009, but I quickly realized that uh, at the time, what knowledge the company had of HR and and me with my brand new MBA degree and experience in the HR world, I got a bit lucky that they thought I was the queen of HR back in the time. And, but yes, I started my journey as a well rounded HR professional way back in 20, 2008. And uh, we have just never looked back since then.
1: Awesome journey and a very inspiring one. I mean, I'm, I'm sure our listeners hearing would also be very happy to know somebody who, you know, started medicine and now have come to HR as a field and made such progress and have achieved such great success. So, congratulations. Thank you. So, my next question to you is. Tell us something, some more information about DNEG, considering it's a seven-time Oscar-winning studio.
0: Right. So, for those listeners who are, uh, I guess, based in Mumbai in India, it uh, DNEG is is better known actually by the name of its parent company, which is Prime Focus. Prime Focus is uh, is now almost a twenty-five-year-old company, based uh, based in in, in Mumbai and uh it started off as a really really small company uh with you know four people in a garage story and uh, it 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 it's now of course grown to be a a behemoth of a company i believe i do believe that in the visual effects industry we are the largest in the world um and uh, just to give you a little background about the industry so We are what what you would typically call in the space of media and entertainment, but particularly within that space, we do what is called post-production. So typically when you make a film, you make an ad film, you make an animated film, There is what we call pre-production, production, production, and post-production. So we are in the post-production space. Uh, We are, in fact, uh, just from last year, now inching into production as well. Uh, we were co-producers of the movie Brahmastra, but yes, we are primarily a production post-production company. We uh, do what is called a digital intermediate. We do visual effects. Our Oscars are all visual effects awards, uh, and uh, for for pretty well-known films in Hollywood, the transition from Prime Focus to DNEG happened in twenty fourteen when we, we as Prime Focus acquired a company in London, which was then called Double Negative. Double Negative at the time was a one-time Oscar-winning company. And uh, just, just like we have the big four in management consulting, Double Negative at the time was considered one of the big four in the visual effects space. And we took that company over in 2014 and uh, formalized that in 2016. And I think except for one year, we have won Oscars every single year since then.
1: Awesome, awesome. So now that we know better about d we would definitely want to know more about you. So you have over 15 years of experience in this industry, in the human resource industry. Um, and you must have been through sure, you know, your own highs and lows. So how do you think the state of women at the helm of affairs have changed in the recent times? If you compare it with what it used to be back then? And where do you see it going in the future?
0: Right. So um, I think I would prefer to give a more gen- general answer to that, not only limited to DNAG. Uh, but I definitely feel when I was fresh back from the US almost over a decade, uh, two decades back. And uh, my experience at the time was uh, within the healthcare field, I did see that there were a lot of women in upper management but very, very few women, of course, on the senior management side of things. Healthcare, of course, is not a very typical, typical industry. And while there were a good chunk of uh, women in the, in the actual medical zone, as management professionals, we didn't have too many women on the senior management side. Uh, I think since then, I would like to think that India has taken quite a quantum leap in terms of uh, giving opportunities to women for uh, senior management roles, and not simply opportunities, but I'd also say there are numerous uh, successful platforms and networks, uh, probably quite like yours as well, uh, that are there to aid women in developing, either developing their skills, developing their networks, upskilling themselves, you know, uh, second innings of women, and, and none of that existed uh, several years back. And I think uh, I might actually even say that we are currently at a point when there might be too many of them in the field and it's uh, not necessarily a bad thing. But yes, of course, then it becomes a little bit difficult to sift out the really serious ones from, from the, excuse my language, but the fly-by-night uh, operators. But I think if you if you or any other woman uh, is able to attach themselves or seek out the right network with the right uh, mentors as part of it, then there is a a lot of opportunity to be developed further. There is a lot of uh, opportunity in terms of uh, networking. And and then there is the, the ability for them to improve themselves in the field and and feel the comfort of taking on leadership roles, ex, you know, increases exponentially.
1: Amazing. And I feel that we've been talking about this topic for a very long time. And I hope there comes a time when we don't have to really talk about it anymore. There's a level playing field for everyone, considering everyone must be, you know, the parameters should be same for everyone. That is how skilled they are, how acquired they are with the skills that are required for a particular position and not how they represent themselves or to what gender they belong to.
0: I agree. I agree with that. But I might actually just uh, I'd like to offer up a slightly different perspective because I think this and this is my my perspective. I think that while we definitely aspire to get to that point where there are no distinctions and, and we don't necessarily pull gender out as a you know, as a diversity metric or something that needs to be audited, I would say that on an equal platform and in my current role as global head of HR, on an equal platform, I am repeatedly asked uh, what are the interventions or initiatives that we are taking as a company to support women and to support women who have children, to support women who have you know, independent needs or are caring for loved ones, etc. So I think it's a little bit of a dichotomy to say. On one hand, we don't want to be considered as separate, but on the other hand, these are real needs of women in these roles. You know, uh, until we get to a, an an uber scientifically advanced stage where men are also delivering babies. I don't think that we are fundamentally in a position to just make a very generic statement about, uh, you know, there shouldn't be a distinction because we have our individual characteristics, we have our individual needs. And I think that every organization at this point in time must look at the talent, and skills and abilities of women, but at the same time, bear in mind that if they want that stealth leadership, uh, that that's superlative leadership forward, then they would need to make necessary accommodations to allow these women to thrive.
1: I definitely, I totally agree with what you said. And it's very important considering where we stand today. So my yeah. next question to you is, what are some of the prevalent HR strategies that the organizations of today must adopt to see sustainable growth? Because that is also one very important topic that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, so in my view, I think uh, what would have been considered as sustainable strategies pre-COVID and sustainable strategies post-COVID also have changed. I wouldn't say changed 180-degree shift, but definitely have changed. I think from HR teams, even during COVID and obviously post-COVID, You know, the usual things we typically hear are the need for teams to be agile, the need for teams to be flexible, the need for teams to be able to think ahead of certain situations that the organization may find itself in. So I think uh, several of these measures, which frankly, I know that, you know, they were being developed by all organizations and all HR departments and organizations, but I think COVID simply fast forwarded them for all of us and and not only just fast forwarded them for us but i think it's almost like covid thrust us all into the deep end of the ocean and uh, and there was a bit of a perform or perish kind of a scenario where certain organizations were quick enough were agile enough and were able to make those shifts very very quickly i'm very proud to say that dineg was one of them and and we've uh, set ourselves off on a path of continually adapting, continually being reflective of the changes anticipated in the organization and seeing what best we can do to maneuver our strategy, our style to adapt to those changes. So to me, honestly, the only thing which is really going to be sustainable is our ability to change.
1: Definitely very very important and I'm so happy that you know you touched this point considering that most of the time we talk about it we just talk about it on a very surface level okay that how we can bring the sustainability but this is the actual core thing that everybody must be doing to touch the real essence of problem. So amazing answer. My next topic that I'm going to touch in this Mm -hmm. conversation is again very very relevant topic in today's time which is employee engagement. So Mm -hmm how we can keep employees engaged at the workplace and what are some of the incentives that, that must be offered to increase retention in today's time?
0: Um. So I guess the way I'd like to address this is I, I actually see this as two slightly different points because engagement is one thing and retention is another. They're linked, but I don't think they're really synonymous with each other. I think from an engagement point of view uh, of course, you know, even within India, most organizations have sort of gone back to work. Uh, in many cases, full time, in many cases, hybrid. Uh, we are currently a little bit of hybrid, I would say, and work from home. I think that one of the key things that that we as as the HR department of this company have learned is also similar to our need to be adaptable for unforeseen circumstances even in our engagement measures the need to be adaptable if we have a hybrid workforce you know and and we do we have not only a hybrid working workforce but we have a hybrid and diverse workforce even when that comes to to the demographics of the team now that's not only limited honestly to male female uh, and and such but uh, we've got people that are across across 25 cities in the country and uh, how do we how do we keep people engaged remotely how do we pe- keep people engaged who are actually coming into the studio how do we cater to age differences even you know there's something that might appeal to a, a younger bunch of people may not appeal to somebody who is you know in their 30s and 40s and and looking after families so we've had to constantly keep our engagement strategies very, very tuned in to the needs of the employees. Of course, we've done you the usual things of you know engagement surveys, asking people what they want, trying out new things every. Quarter or every other quarter, just to see what sticks, what doesn't. We've learned along the way. You know what are some of the strategies that are hugely successful? What are some of the strategies that you know maybe have failed miserably even? But that's how we've been able to sort of you know sustain some level of engagement within our employees. On the retention piece, to be honest, I think that at a very surface level, I would like to say that you know retention is honestly, I think it it deserves a podcast in its own 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 self but at the same time I think while opportunity and specifically for India and you know with just the sheer number of companies starting up in India especially in our in our industry in media uh, or in visual effects even even in just the last two years we've got at least two or three global giants that have come through and decided to set up shop in India now, you know, there is an attractiveness to something new. There is an attractiveness to something that people have not tried before. So I feel when when something like that happens, regardless of what we do, we should accept and we should be prepared for a certain amount of attrition. And uh, in fact, I think we need to be sort of a little bit thinking ahead of the curve on that and not trying to simply retain for the, for the heck of retain. That said, I think one of the key things that, that we have found in our industry that work, uh, two things I would say, one is the opportunity for learning and development. I think specifically I can speak for the artists in my industry that there is honestly very little which can compete with the opportunity to learn and develop their skill set and grow because that's, that's an e easy transition to a better career better uh, compensation etc and i think the other one that i would sort of almost put under a a, a bucket of, of things is flexibility we are increasingly as we as we invite the younger workforce into our company we are looking that that younger workforce is looking for flexibility is looking for opportunity is looking for where can they uh, I think we've kind of moved a little bit away from the typical nine to five kind of jobs to people expecting flexibility in terms of work, to flexibility in terms of time, flexibility in terms of uh, you know the ability to do uh, more entrepreneurial things on the side. So I think that the ability of the organisation to allow for that within the parameters of what works, I think, is is another big one. That uh, that will lead automatically to employee stickiness and retention.
1: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. And I think the workforce of today—I mean, the younger generation that is coming, including Amina, include myself—in that we are all aware of what we really need or want out of the out of life, out of our careers. How do we want? How do we want to take it? We are also willing to take a risk and being experimental at the same time. Considering it's a time of Entrepreneurial journeys, like everybody's starting this another wave of startups coming up. And uh, at the same time, companies have also become aware of those needs and they try to cater to them to the maximum extent so that, you know, the fresh talent could be retained in the organization. Yes. My last question to you is what are your insights on promoting equity at the workplace, considering that, you know, it's, it's all equal at the end of the day? So,
0: Sure. Um, I think, I mean, obviously, I think the West is a little ahead uh, of India in the, in this regard. If you ask me very frankly, and just from the experience I've had over the last three years heading the company globally and having a little bit of visibility into what what promotes gender equity uh, in in the Western environments versus here, I feel like there's a combination of a few things. I said, and, and I would say particularly two. One is, of course, the organizational ability and, and desire to do that. But I've certainly seen that in the West, uh, there are legal and employment law-related criteria that, that would nudge the organization towards promoting gender equity. I don't think that... They are nearly enough in India at this point in time. I don't mean to suggest that companies will will toe the line only when legislated to do it. But I think that there are very, very few companies out there today that would that would sort of, uh, you know, imbibe some of this upon themselves by themselves. Uh, you know when it is mandated you need one woman director on the board, that's when they come looking for one woman director. When it's mandated that 50% of your board needs to be women, then they come doing that. So I think that India has a little bit of a way to go, but that's from a legislation point of view. And I think that will eventually happen in this country. But that said, I think uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about the number of platforms today that exist for women to to voice their views, to speak for experts, to come in, share their views. Not only share views, but also enable the organizations to deploy some strategies which will promote this is now a lot more out there than what used to be even, I'd say, a decade back. And I think that organizations would, would well be served by partnering with some of these formal networks or formal platforms To see how they can embrace this topic of gender equity uh, a little bit more in a more commercially savvy and financially savvy way, because I think typically most boards would automatically look at something like this as, oh, they just want us to spend more money. And I truly don't believe that that is the case. There is a strategy to building towards something, and of course, there are many, many Uh, organizations, mainstream organizations, could be banks, could be financial institutions, could be education sectors, where this is already happening. Uh, I think clearly there are areas where uh, there is a lot of ground to be covered, but I think it's a combination of the organization's appetite, uh, legislation, and also the organization's ability to be able to partner up with experts to enable them to do that.
1: Yes, very important. And I totally agree with what you said. So thank you, Dalna, for giving, taking time out of your busy schedule and, you know, coming on board with this podcast and sharing your amazing point of views. I'm sure our listeners would also agree with that.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode.
0: Thank you.